Section number four of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. November, Part 1. My friend Garone. Friday, November 4th. There were but two days of vacation, yet it seemed a long time without seeing Garone. The more I know him, the better I like him, and so it is with all the rest, except with the overbearing, who have nothing to say to him, because he does not permit them to bully. Every time a big boy raises his hands against a little one, the little one shouts, Garone! And the big one stops striking him. His father is an engine driver on the railway. Garone began school late, because he was ill for two years. He is the tallest and the strongest of the class. He lifts a bench with one hand. He is always eating. And he is good. Whatever he is asked for, a pencil, rubber, paper, or penknife, he lends or gives it, and he neither talks nor laughs in school. He always sits perfectly still on a bench that is too narrow for him, with his spine curved forward and his big head between his shoulders. And when I look at him, he smiles at me with his eyes half-closed, as much to say, well, Enrico, are we friends? He makes me laugh, because tall and broad as he is, he has a jacket, trousers, and sleeves which are too small for him, and too short, a cap which will not stay on his head, a threadbare cloak, coarse shoes, and a necktie which is always twisted into a cord. Dear Garone, it needs but one glance in his face to inspire love for him. All the little boys like to be near his bench. He knows arithmetic well. He carries his books bound together with a strap of red leather. He has a knife with a mother-of-pearl handle, which he found in the field for military maneuvers last year. And one day he cut his finger to the bone, but no one in school knew about it, and he did not breathe a word about it at home, for fear of alarming his parents. He lets us say anything to him in jest, and he never takes it ill, but woe to anyone who says to him that is not true. When he states a thing, then fire flashes from his eyes, and he hammers down blows enough to split the bench. Saturday morning he gave a soldo to one of the upper first class, who was crying in the middle of the street, because his own had been taken from him, and he could not buy his copybook. For the last three days he has been working over a letter of eight pages with pen ornaments on the margins, for the saint's day of his mother, who often comes to get him, and who, like himself, is tall and large and sympathetic. The master is always glancing at him, and every time that he passes near him, he taps him on the neck with his hand, as though he were a good, peaceable young bull. 
I am very fond of him. I am happy when I press his big hand, which seems like a man's in mine. I am sure he would risk his life to save that of a comrade, that he would allow himself to be killed in his defense. So clearly can I read his eyes. And although he always seems to be grumbling with that big voice of his, one feels that it is a voice that comes from a gentle heart. The Charcoal Man and the Gentleman Monday, November 7th Garone would certainly never have said the words that Carlo Nobis spoke yesterday morning to Betty. Carlo Nobis is proud, because his father is a great gentleman, a tall gentleman, with a black beard, who is very serious, and who accompanies his son to school nearly every day. Yesterday morning, Nobis quarreled with Betty, one of the smallest boys, and the son of a charcoal man, and not knowing what retort to make because he was in the wrong, said to him loudly, Your father is a tattered beggar. Betty reddened up to his very hair and said nothing, but the tears came to his eyes, and when he went home he repeated the words to his father. So the charcoal dealer, a little man who was black all over, made his appearance at the afternoon session, leading his boy by the hand in order to complain to the master. While he was making his complaint, and everyone was silent, the father of Nobis, who was taking off his son's coat at the entrance, as usual, entered on hearing his name pronounced, and asked an explanation. "'This workman has come,' said the master, to complain that your son Carlo said this boy, your father, is a tattered beggar. Nobis's father frowned and colored slightly. Then he asked his son, Did you say that? His son, who was standing in the middle of the school, with his head hanging in front of little Betty, made no reply. Then his father grasped him by one arm and pushed him forward facing Betty, so that they nearly touched, and said to him, Beg his pardon. The charcoal man tried to interpose, saying, No, no. But the gentleman paid no heed to him, and repeated to his son, Beg his pardon. Repeat my words. I beg your pardon for the insulting, foolish, ignoble words of which I uttered your father whose hand my father would feel honored to grasp. The charcoal man made a gesture as to say, I will not allow it. The gentleman did not heed him, and his son said slowly, in a very thread of a voice, without raising his eyes from the ground, I beg your pardon for the insulting, foolish, ignoble words which I uttered against your father, whose hand my father would feel honored to grasp. Then the gentleman offered his hand to the charcoal man, who shook it vigorously. And then, with a sudden push, he thrust his son into the arms of Carlo Nobis. Do me a favor to place them next to each other, said the gentleman 
to the master. The master put Betty on Nobis's bench. When they were seated, the father of Nobis bowed and went away. The charcoal man remained standing there and thought for several moments, gazing at the two boys side by side. Then he approached the bench and fixed upon Nobis a look expressive of affection and regret, as though he were desirous of saying something to him. But he did not. He stretched out his hand to bestow a caress upon him. But he did not dare, and merely stroked his brow with his large fingers. Then he made his way to the door, and turning round for one last look, he disappeared. Fix what you have just seen firmly in your minds, boys, said the master. This is the finest lesson of the year. My Brother's Schoolmistress, Thursday, November 10th. The son of the charcoal man had been a pupil of the schoolmistress, Delcati, who had come to see my brother when he was ill, and who had made us laugh by telling us how, two years ago, the mother of his boy had brought to her house a big apronful of charcoal. Out of gratitude to her for having given the medal to her son, and the poor woman had persisted and had not been willing to carry the coal home again and had wept when she was obliged to go away with her apron quite full. And she told us, also, of another good woman who had brought her a very heavy bunch of flowers, inside of which there was a little hoard of soldi. We had been greatly diverted in listening to her, and so my brother had swallowed his medicine which he had not been willing to do before. How much patience is necessary with those boys of the lower first, all toothless like old men, who cannot pronounce their R's and S's, and one coughs, and another has the nosebleed, and another loses his shoes under the bench, and another bellows because he has pricked himself with his pen, and another one cries because he has bought copybook number two instead of number one. Fifty in a class who know nothing, and all of them with those flabby little hands, must be taught to write. They carry in their pockets bits of licorice, buttons, file corks, pounded bricks, all sorts of little things, and the teacher has to search them. But they hide these things even in their shoes, and they are not attentive. A fly enters through a window and throws them all into confusion and in summer they bring grass into school, and hornbugs, which fly around in circles, or fall into the inkstand, and then streak the copy books all over with ink. The schoolmistress has to play mother to all of them, to help them dress themselves, tie up their pricked fingers, pick up their caps when they drop them, watch to see that they do not exchange coats, and that they do not indulge in catcalls and shrieks. Poor schoolmistress! And then the mothers come to complain, How come it, signora, that my boy has lost his pen? How does it happen that mine learns nothing? Why is not my boy put on the roll of honor when he knows so much? Why don't you have that nail that has torn my perro's trousers taken out of the bench? Sometimes my brother's teacher gets out of patience with the boys, 
and when she can resist no longer, she bites her finger to keep herself from dealing a blow. She loses temper, and then she repents and pets the child whom she has scolded. She sends a little rogue out of school, and then swallows her tears and flies into a rage with parents who make the little ones fast by way of punishment. Schoolmistress Delcati is young and tall, well-dressed, brown of complexion, and restless. She does everything as though on springs, is affected by a mere trifle, and at such times speaks with great tenderness. But the children become attached to you, surely, my mother said to her. Many do, she replied, but at the end of the year, the majority of them pay no further heed to us. When they are with the masters, they are almost ashamed of having been with a woman teacher. After two years of cares, after having loved the child so much, it makes us feel sad to part from him. But we say to ourselves, Oh, I am sure of that one. He is fond of me. But the vacation over. He comes back to school. I run to meet him. Oh, my child, my child. And he turns his head away. Here the teacher interrupted herself. But you will not do that, little one, she said, raising her humid eyes and kissing my brother. You will not turn aside your head, will you? You will not deny your poor friend, my mother. Thursday, November 10th. In the presence of your brother's teacher, you failed to respect your mother. Let this never happen again, my Enrico. Never again. Your irreverent word pierced my heart like a point of steel. I thought of your mother when, years ago, she bent the whole of one night over your little bed, watching your breathing, weeping in her anguish, and with her teeth chattering with terror, because she thought she had lost you, and I feared that she would lose her reason. And at this thought, I felt a sentiment of horror at you, you to offend your mother, your mother who would give a year of happiness to spare you one hour of pain, who would beg for you, who would allow herself to be killed to save your life. Listen, Enrico, fix this thought well in your mind. Reflect that you are destined to experience many terrible days in the course of your life. The most terrible will be that in which you lose your mother. A thousand times, Enrico, after you are a man strong and inured in all fates, you will invoke her, oppressed with an intense desire to hear her voice, if but not for a moment, and to see once more her open arms, into which you can throw yourself, sobbing like a poor child, bereft of comfort and protection. How you will then recall every bitterness that you have caused her, and with what remorse will you pay for all, unhappy being? Hope for no peace in your life if you have caused your mother grief. You will repent. You will beg for her forgiveness. You will venerate her memory in vain. Conscience will give you no rest. That sweet and gentle image will always wear for you an expression of sadness and of reproach which will put your soul to torture. Oh, Enrico, beware. This is the most sacred of human affections. Unhappy he who tramples it underfoot. 
the assassin who respects his mother has still something honest and noble in his heart. The most glorious of men who grieves and offends her is but a vile creature. Never again let a harsh word issue from your lips for the being who gave you life. And if one should ever escape you, let it not be the fear of your father, but let it be the impulse of your soul which casts you at her feet to beseech her that she will blot from your brow with the kiss of forgiveness, the stain of ingratitude. I love you, my son. You are the dearest hope of my life. But I would rather see you dead than ungrateful to your mother. Go away for a little space. Offer me no more of your caresses. I should not be able to return them from my heart. Signed, your father. My Friend Coretti, Sunday, November 13th. My father forgave me, but I was somewhat downcast. So my mother sent me with the porter's largest son to take a walk on the Corso. Halfway down the Corso, as we were passing a cart which was standing in front of a shop, I heard someone call my name. I turned around. It was Coretti, my schoolmate, with his chocolate-colored clothes and a cat-skin cap, all in perspiration, but merry, with a big load of wood on his shoulders. A man who was standing in the cart was handing him an armful of wood at a time, which he took and carried into his father's shop, where he piled it up in the greatest haste. "'What are you doing, Coretti? I asked him. "'Don't you see?' he answered reaching out his arms to receive the load. I am reviewing my lessons. <laughs> I laughed, but he seemed to be serious, and having grasped that armful of wood, he began to repeat as he ran. The conjunction of the verb consists in its variations according to number, according to number and person, and then throwing down the wood and piling it. According to the time, according to the time to which the action refers, and turning to the cart for another armful, according to the mode in which the action is enunciated. It was our grammar lesson for the following day. Isn't this a good scheme? He said. I am putting my time to use. My father has gone off on business. My mother is ill. It falls on me to do the unloading. In the meantime, I'm going over my grammar lesson. It is a hard lesson today. I could not succeed in getting it into my head. My father said he'd be here at seven o'clock to give you your money, he said to the man with the cart. The cart drove off. Come into the shop for a minute, Coretti said to me. I went in. It was a large room full of piles of wood and faggots with a steel yard on one side. This is a busy day, I can assure you, resumed Coretti. I have to do my work by fits and starts. I was writing my phrases when some customers came in. I went to writing again, and behold, that cart arrived. I have already made two trips to the wood market in the Piazza Vienzia this morning. My legs are so tired that I can hardly stand, and my hands are all swollen. 
I should be in a pretty pickle if I had to draw. And as he spoke, he set about sweeping up the dry leaves and the straw which covered the brick-paved floor. But where do you do your work, Coretti? I inquired. Not here, certainly, he replied. Come and see. And he led me into a little room behind the shop, which served as a kitchen and dining room, with a table in one corner, on which there were books and copy books, and work which had been begun. Here it is, he said. I left the second answer unfinished. Leather is used for shoes and belts, and, oh yes, and valises. And taking his pen, he began to write in his fine hand. Is there anyone here? came a call from the shop at that moment. It was a woman who had come to buy some little faggots. Here I am, replied Coretti, and he sprang out, weighed the faggots, took the money, ran to a corner to enter the sale into a shabby old account book and returned to his work, saying, Let's see if I can finish that sentence. And he wrote traveling bags, and knapsacks for soldiers. Oh, my poor coffee is boiling over! He exclaimed, and ran to the stove to take the coffee pot from the fire. It is coffee for my mamma, he said. I had to learn how to make it. Wait a while, and we will carry it to her. She will be glad to see you. She has been in bed a whole week. Conjunction of the verb. I always scald my fingers with this coffee pot. What is there that I can add after the soldier's knapsacks? Something more is needed, and I can think of nothing. Come to Mama. He opened a door, and we entered another small room. There, Coretti's mother lay in a big bed, with a white kerchief wound round her head. Here is your coffee, Mama, he said, and this is one of my schoolmates. Ah, brave little master, the woman said to me. You have come to visit the sick, have you? Meanwhile, Coretti was arranging the pillows behind his mother's back, straightening the bedclothes, brightening up the fire, and driving the cat off the chest of drawers. Do you want anything else, Mama? he asked, as he took the cup from her. Have you taken the two spoonfuls of syrup? When it is all gone, I will make a trip to the apothecary's. The wood is unloaded. At four o'clock, I will put the meat on the stove, as you told me, and when the butter woman passes, I will give her those eight sordi. Everything will go on well, so don't give it a thought. Thank you, my son replied the woman. That will do. Poor boy. He thinks of everything. She insisted that I take a lump of sugar, and then Coretti showed me a little picture, the photograph of his father dressed as a soldier, with the medal for bravery which he had won in 1866 in the troop of Prince Umberto. He had the same face as his son, with the same vivacious eyes and merry smile. We went back to the kitchen. I have found the last answer, said Coretti, and he added on his copybook, Hardness is also made of it. The rest I will do this evening. I shall sit up later. How happy you are to have time to study and to go to walk, too.
and still gay and active, he re-entered the shop and began to place pieces of wood on the horse and to saw them, saying, This is gymnastics. It is quite different from the throw your arms forward. I want my father to find all this wood sawed when he gets home. How glad he will be. The worst part of it is that after sawing, I make T's and L's look like snakes, so the teacher says. What am I to do? I shall tell him that I have to move my arms about. The important thing is to have Mama get well quickly. She is better today, thank heaven. I will study my grammar tomorrow morning at Cockrow. Oh, here's the cart with the logs. To work! A small cart laden with logs halted in front of the shop. Coretti ran out to speak to the man, then returned, I cannot keep your company any longer now. He said farewell until tomorrow. You did right to come and hunt me up. A pleasant walk to you, lucky fellow. And pressing my hand, he ran to take the first log, and began once more to trot back and forth between the cart and the shop with a face as fresh as a rose beneath the catskin cap, and so alert that it was a pleasure to see him. Lucky fellow, he had said to me. Ah, no, Coretti, no. You are the more fortunate, because you study and work too, because you are of use to your father and mother, because you are better, a hundred times better, and braver than I, my dear schoolmate. The Principal, Friday, November 18th. Coretti was pleased this morning because his master of the second class, Coati, a big man with a huge head of curly hair, a great black beard, big dark eyes, and a voice like a cannon, had come to assist in the work of the monthly examination. He is always threatening the boys that he will break them in pieces and carry them by the nape of the neck to the police station. And he makes all sorts of frightful faces, though he never punishes anyone, but always smiles the while behind his beard so that no one can see it. There are eight masters in all, including Kowati, and a little beardless assistant who looks like a boy. There is one master of the fourth class who is lame and goes wrapped up in a big woolen scarf and who is always suffering from pains, which he contracted when he was a teacher in the country, in a damp school where the walls were dripping with moisture. Another of the teachers of the fourth is old and perfectly white-haired and has been a teacher of the blind. There is one well-dressed master with eyeglasses and a blonde mustache who was called Little Lawyer, because while he was teaching, he studied law and took his diploma. And he also got up a book to teach how to write letters. The one who teaches gymnastics is of a soldierly type, and was with Garibaldi, and has on his neck a scar from a saber wound received at the Battle of Milazzo. Then there is the principal, who is tall and bald, and wears gold spectacles, and has a gray beard that flows down upon his breast. He dresses entirely in black, 
and is always buttoned up to the chin. He is so kind to the boys that when they enter his office, all in a tremble, because they have been summoned to receive a reproof. He does not scold them, but takes them by the hand and tells them so many reasons why they ought not to behave so, and why they should be sorry and promise to be good. And he speaks in such a kind manner and in so gentle a voice that they all come out with red eyes more confused than if they'd been punished. Poor headmaster, he is always the first at his post in the morning, waiting for the scholars and lending an ear to the parents, and when the other masters are ready on their way home, he is still hovering about the school and looking out that the boys do not get under the carriage wheels, or hang about the streets to stand on their heads, or fill their bags with sand or shoes. And the moment he appears at the corner, so tall and black, flocks of boys scamper off in all directions, leaving their games of copper and marbles, and he threatens them from afar with his forefinger, with his sad and loving air. No one has ever seen him smile, my mother says, since the death of his son, who was a volunteer in the army. He always keeps the latter's portrait before his eyes, on a little table in his room. He wanted to go away after this misfortune. He wrote his resignation to the municipal council and kept it always on his table, putting off sending it from day to day because it grieved him to leave the boys. The other day he seemed undecided, and my father, who was in the director's room with him, was just saying him, What a shame it is that you are going away, senior director. When a man came in to put down the name of a boy who was to be transferred from another schoolhouse to ours, because he had changed his residence. At the sight of this boy, the principal made a gesture of astonishment, gazed at him for a while, looked at the portrait that he keeps on his little table, and then stared at the boy again as he drew him between his knees and made him hold up his head. The boy resembled his dead son. The principal said, It is all right, wrote down his name, dismissed the father and son, and remained lost in thought. What a pity you are going away, repeated my father. The headmaster took up his resignation, tore it in two, and said, I shall remain. End of section four. Recorded by Julina Goodell, Fairfax, Virginia.